good to see everybody. Um, if you've been with us before, you know that we often don't read the entire scripture in its entirety before the talk. We more rather sort of journey through it as we go along. But tonight, on our last talk through a two-year-old series, a two-year-old series and an immense book, I wanted to read the last chapter. Rather, I wanted Kevin to read it because I didn't want to read any of those names, dude. I, didn't, I, I couldn't do it. So I had Kevin do it, God bless him, because I wanted us to hear without any interruptions. I wanted to read it knowing that these are the last words of Luke. These are the last words of Luke. These are the last verses in Acts. And so remembering everything that we've walked through. If you've been with us for two years, who was here in the very first time, Acts chapter 1? Awesome. Awesome. So if you've been with us this entire time, and if you, if you haven't, that's okay, but there's been a lot of ascension flying, lame to walking, uh, you know, demon exercising, gospel spreading, miracle happening, Holy Spirit falling, church multiplying, ship wrecking things that have happened. And all of that to these final moments. All of that to these final moments that Kevin just read. This epic, epic tale. And then all of a sudden it just stops. Every commentator I read on the subject, that's 13 commentaries, every commentator I read made it a point to say that this ending, what we just read, is very anticlimactic. This ending, this one. They, they, some have gone so far to say it's, it's kind of boring. After what we just came from, it's kind of boring. Basically saying, Luke, really? Luke, really? Like, that's it? That's the ending? It's like the ending to loss. This incredible season, and all of a sudden, really? If you're a musician here, you especially hate the type of endings that end with, like, in the middle of a measure, right? No musician wants to hear a song that ends in, like, the middle of a measure. You just kind of, like, we can't handle it. Or it's like if Game of Thrones never came back to TV, it's like, we need to see the ending. Or it's like only eating half of the whole pizza. It's unheard of. We finish it every time. It feels incomplete. Because we are left to wonder, where's, uh, where's Paul's eulogy? How's Paul die? What's happened with the whole, you know, go before Caesar thing? Uh, what happens to Luke? What happens to Peter? We're left wondering. It literally ends with, and let me read it to one, more, one more time. Proclaiming, verse 31, the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So then, what's the point? Why end it here? What's the takeaway? Why the fizzle? The author... Uh, John Fowles wrote a novel, a novel excuse me, titled uh, The French Lieutenant's Woman. Has anybody read it? Anybody seen the movie with Meryl Streep like 40 years ago? It's a very interesting novel and the first of its kinds in a lot of ways. Here's why. It reads as a typical novel until you get to the end, much like Acts. And as you come to the, to the close of the book, you receive a shock of sorts. That being you, the reader, must choose the ending. You as the reader must choose the ending. The novel invites us as the reader and asks, how do you want this to end? How do you want this to end? Do you want it to end like this or do you want it to end like that? To me, I think this is brilliant and it's sort of popular, you know, popular now, but back then this was mind-blowing. And I think it's brilliant for any author to do this. 
Because what happens is by the reader choosing the ending is it reads into the reader. The, the, the book basically switches places with, with its reader, with the one holding it. Meaning, by us involved in the ending, the reader is not saying something about the story, but saying something about themselves in light of the story. For you to choose the ending says something about yourself in light of the story. It's a mirror rather than a window, if you will. And as we come to the end of Acts, every single one of you, including myself, is given a choice. This is the point. This is the point. This is the takeaway. That it's this endless ending. If any of us have been here, and I had everybody sort of raise their hands who has been here for a while, but if any of us, so far, any point you came into the point, or you know, when you joined us in Acts, if you've been basking safely or detached as an observer up until this point in Acts, like looking through a window, tonight Acts forces you Christian or not, Acts forces you to look into the mirror. Maybe this is why Scottish minister and professor William Barclay says this, that in one sense, Acts is the most important book in the New Testament. For many reasons, Acts is important, but a major reason is because of its inclusion. Because of its inclusion. Acts is, yes, a historical document that we've talked about a bunch, but to Christians and to unchristians alike, it's an invitation and an important one at that. Allow me to explain. 28 chapters and over a thousand verses are now under our belt. We have watched feverishly just the beginnings. All we've seen is the beginnings of what we call Christianity. The beginnings of the first spirit-filled community, the beginnings of the Christian movement, the beginnings of church planting, the beginnings of, that's basically starting a church, beginning of church governance, church ministry, church mission, and obviously the church itself. Beginnings, beginnings, beginnings. And for the most part, we have sat back passively going, yeah, 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 reflecting on our history. Oh, that's cool. That's the ending there. That was for them. But the ending of Acts is to show us here that it's just the opposite of that. Its conclusion, my friends, is that there is no conclusion. There are beginnings, but no end. Again, to be redundant, Acts is the endless book. That's its mirror. That's its mirror that it is giving us. There's this great moment um, in Lord of the Rings where why... (laughs) Did somebody just say yes under their breath? That so pumped. (laughs) This is why I do these illustrations for Katrina. That's it. There's this great moment in the movie of the Lord of the Rings where wise Gandalf is worried for the hobbits. And he says this. He goes, They had begun to forget. Forget their own beginnings and legends. Forget what little they had known about the greatness of the world. Many Christians have forgotten that their beginnings and legends is this book. For Christians, this is like a spiritual and missional, like ancestry.com type thing. These 28 chapters are the, the introduction to ourselves, to what we are to continue on as the church. But what's yet to be known for some here tonight is are you coming or are you staying? I'll read it this way. Author Gary Haugen says it like this. This is a great quote. 
he says, he is inviting all of us, that being Jesus, he's inviting all of us on his great, costly expedition of transformation in the world. But we must respond. Are we coming or staying? Jesus is relentlessly issuing the invitation and forcing a choice to action. What are we going to do? I am much more interested in telling Jesus and others what I believe, but Jesus and the watching world know that what I truly believe will be manifested in what I choose to do. The book of Acts is a story about people who said, yes, we're going on this costly expedition. It's a story of people said yes to the invitation. And if you think about it, haven't we seen or come across, uh, I mean, actually, I don't think we have seen or come across a single complacent Christian in all of its verses. It's boiling over with men and women who come alive by the good news of Jesus and do what? Act. They act and they act. Acts is supposed to be a vision Acts is supposed to be a revelation. Acts is supposed to be an object lesson of what's true when God's people accept the invitation to act. Oh, this is what it could look like. This is what it could be like when we say yes to the invitation. It looks like the book of Acts. Again, if you think about it, this book is not called sit, stew, consume, idealize, fart around, beat around the bush. It's called Acts. Because that's what we are to do. So here's what I want to do tonight. I want to keep it soups simple and very easy and very basic. What I want to do is sort of big picture, put a bow on Acts and summarize its largest of themes going very macro and micro back and forth, even with themes ending with our friend Paul. Paul the Apostle, the Apostle, the word Apostle meaning one who was sent out. Paul is a man who, guess what? Acts. And at all costs, you remember, he acts by land or by sea. If you were here with us a couple weeks ago, right? Even tonight, we'll see that at all costs, he acts. So let's get into this. And let me just say, Luke, man, I'm so pumped. Luke knows how to really end, in some regards, the beginning of his last chapter because he decided to put in there a wild animal attack. And I got to be honest, I am so jazzed right now to talk about this. I mean, it's like an episode of Untamed and Uncut. Did anybody watch that? I watched that religiously. Anybody? Animal Planet? Just me and a bunch of liars. You all watched it. Man, it's a great show. We pick up right where that horrific storm leaves off. 276 sailors and soldiers and prisoners soaked to the bone walk up onto a sandy beach shore on an island called Malta, which is a very fitting word because it means refuge. Now, though, it's not called Malta. Does anybody know what it's called, perhaps? Don't be afraid to talk in church. Anybody know? It's called St. Paul's Bay. How cool is that? Jot that down. Whatever. All right, verse 2. The native people showed us unusual kindness for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. They're already freezing. And now it's raining. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire. We're going to pause. Right here. 
let's just think about this for a moment. Paul is getting kindling for a fire. Paul, the man, the captain, basically, the hero in so many ways is collecting firewood. When I read this, you know what I think of? I think of our church. This church blows my mind. When I walk in and I see lawyers putting out chairs, when I see engineers who've got enough PhDs in their pockets to choke a cow and they're changing diapers... My goodness, when real estate investors are passing out coffee, this, you guys are an incredible church. Incredible. And I am so thankful for the men and women in this church. She's right here, dude. An incredible church. All good, bro. I got you. Think about this. The men and women who are capable of doing great things for God are usually the men and women who do not, do, who does, who do not disdain doing, doing little things for God, right? The ones who you know are going to do the most kingdom impact in this world are not the ones who are, who are afraid to get their hands dirty and put out a couple chairs. So thankful for our volunteers. Verse 3. When Paul had gathered a bunch of sticks, a bundle of sticks, and put them on a fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened onto his hand. One more time, just so it sinks in. A snake on fire came out and fastened onto his hand. Has anybody here been bit by a snake before? Chase? That makes sense. That actually, I get it. Chase? Okay, so I grew up in Prescott, Arizona. If you're familiar with Arizona, diamondback rattlesnakes are as common there as seagulls are to the west side. Okay, so if, you, if I was ever to go out on a walk or if we ever did hiking, <laughs> I didn't never, <laughs> if I went on a walk, <laughs> if I ever went on a walk, you would hear almost all the time the devil's rattle. Friends, there's nothing more terrifying than hearing the rattle, looking down, and seeing an animal that could so easily take your life warning you. It is terrifying. You feel like J-Lo from like Anaconda. Like it's half, this is terrifying. Now, if a viper bites you, what happens is its venom attacks your tissue and blood cells, where the poison progresses through your body, binds to your tissue, and causes serious problems to circulation, swelling, and if not treated, death. Okay? So as Paul is picking up sticks and preparing a warm fire, the snake bites and holds on. Did you guys notice that? It holds on. Side note, if this happens in real life, pour alcohol over the snake's mouth to get it to let go. So you guys thought you were coming here for a sermon. I'm giving you practical emergency snake bite tactics. Tell your friends. Only here, folks. But all of this, all of this is very confusing for the indigenous people of Malta. They're completely, what what has happened? Look at verse 4. When the native people saw that the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, (laughs) no doubt this guy's a murderer. Basically, Karma, bruh. That's what they just said. Though he's escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He has escaped from King Neptune's fate, so DK, the god of justice, has gotten him. He, however, (laughs) 
like Taylor Swift, shakes it out, and the creature goes into the fire, and Paul suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up suddenly, fall down dead, but when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said, no, 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 he's a god. Oh, he's a murderer. Snake shake. No, he's a god. Friends, as readers of Paul's life, we are to read this and not be shocked in the slightest. We are to know, yeah, riots, torture situation, prison cells, shipwreck. This is no shock here. Nothing can kill this man. No basilisk is going to do anything to him. But here's the most important part that I want for our summarizing theme for us. These barbarians speak absolute truth. When they see this, they speak truth. What do they say? Pastor, Apostle Paul is a murderer. And they're absolutely right. Paul is a murderer. Or rather, or was. This this man is a god. No, he's from God. He's of God. So what, I mean, who cares? What say you, Casey? See, the invitation to unite with God and his purposes extends to all. To the sinners, to students, to stay-at-home moms, to baristas, to CEOs, and even the most foul, like Paul. One of the main arteries running through these pages of the book of Acts is this invitation for criminals to the seemingly regular people, to a bunch of nobodies. Look at verse 14. This is the invitation, or this invitation goes to all. Look at verse 14. This is, this is so important. It says, there we found brothers. There we found brothers. And we invited to stay with them for seven days. Do you know what this means? We found brothers. Do you know what this means? Everywhere Paul went, other unnamed Christians were there first. Bishop and historian Stephen Neal tells us from his classic history of Christian missions, this is what he says. He goes, nothing is more notable than the obscurity of these early missionaries. Luke does not turn aside to mention the name of a single one of these pioneers who laid the foundation. Few, if any, of the great churches were really founded by the apostles. Peter and Paul, Paul, may have organized the church in Rome. They certainly did not found it. Everywhere Paul landed, he was finding and running into Christians first. This is huge. You see, where Acts, we think, maybe is the focus on Paul, Paul is not the subject of the book. We are wrong. This is why its end is so abrupt, the way it does. But, you know, the book is not about personalities. We do not need to see the way Peter or Paul passed on. This book is about the power of the gospel of Jesus in the hands of regular people. I love this so much. If you remember Acts chapter 8, we went through it a long time ago. Verse 4, it says this. Now those who were scattered and went about preaching the word. That's not talking about all the pastors they scattered, all the clergymen they scattered, all the professional professors they scattered. Nope. That is about regular nobodies, average Joes. In fact, not a single apostle went with them. I think a huge wrong and injustice as a pastor or Bible teacher would be to not inform you that wherever you are, whoever you are, you are invited to be part of something 
How did Gary Haugen say it? World transforming. But I will say this. I think the greater injustice, a wrongdoing for Christians, I'm talking to Christians for a moment, is to know the invitation and not participate. To reject the invitation. Acts is in our life to remove the if component. And all we are left with is, is, is to ask where and how. Okay, so what is this then? What is the invitation to exactly? Is it to a wedding? Is it to a burrito party? What is it to exactly? Well, Paul shows us. Let's read on. After three months on the island, they board the ship. They finally make it in verse 16. And let this sit with you for a moment. If you've been with us for a while, he's been trying to get to Rome for a long time, years. So when we read these words, we do not just pass over them lightly. Verse 16, and when we came into Rome. It's a big moment. It's a big moment. When we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since because it is a hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. Because Paul is chained to Jesus, Paul is now chained to the soldier. Verse 21, And they said to him, We have received no letter from Judea about you. None of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken evil about you. But we desire to hear from you and what your views are. For with regard to the sect, we know that everywhere is spoken against. So you you kind of have to sit with this for a moment. Paul's like, You've probably heard of me. I'm kind of a big deal. I've got many leather-bound books. And these people, you know what they do? Hmm. I don't know who you are. We know the group you're a part of, but I have no idea who you are. So it's, it's a humbling. I don't know. But he calls them because he calls them to come to him because there's no way Paul is going to go to them. There's no way. What happened last time he went to the Jewish leaders? Remember? Got arrested. Got beat up a little bit. So they're going to come to him. And for some reason, these people agree to come. We'll see you. We'll go to you, Paul. And they traveled probably many, many miles where Paul would have been staying. He probably would have been on a, a Roman military base camp that was many miles away. And when these guys showed up, Paul gets straight to work with the gospel. You see this? Paul arrives in Rome, totally beat up and, and shipwrecked and snake bit. But the gospel is completely full and whole and lively and thriving and flourishing. Paul is bound. The gospel is not. Verse 23. When they had pointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great, greater numbers from morning till evening. This man can talk. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God. Keep that in the back of your noodle. And trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And when some were convinced, some were convinced by what he said, but what? But others disbelieved. Some, yeah, but others disbelieved. How many times in this very repetitive book, if you didn't know that about Acts, super repetitive, very hard to do as a Bible teacher. It's super repetitive. But how many times have we read something like this? Half of the people believe and half of the people didn't. We read it all the time. They believe, they disbelieve, they walked away, they rejected them, they picked up stones. The words, 
right here that some disbelieved. I mean, I just want to make that very applicable. There's people in this room right now who disbelieve. We've had countless people coming in and out of our doors who disbelieve. There are those here right now, and I'm speaking to you directly, who you're not convinced. You're not quite sure. You're clinging to what you know, and you're clinging to who you are. And then the gospel comes around, the good news of Jesus, and it takes those assurances and it rattles them. It's been very famously said that the gospel must be used to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. These men Paul around, who he's around, these Jewish leaders, are afflicted. They're uncomfortable. So guess what they do? I'm out. Why? Because Paul just told them the entire gospel. Not the prosperity gospel, not health and wealth, not religious gobbledygook. Paul connects this with that, how every prophecy is fulfilled, what happens on the road to Damascus. Paul is telling them that God, Yahweh, has come to mankind to free mankind from the bonds of performance anxiety, from the bonds of earning, from the bonds of religiosity, from sin, Satan, hell, and death, to renew all things through the freeing work of Jesus Christ to establish his kingdom in his people by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul has just told them. He's just told them the real story of God. He's basically telling these people, ah, you're close, but no cigar, Jewish religious leaders. He's telling them that Jesus is the point to all of this, the fulfillment to all of this the Lord of everything. This is not the type of gospel they want to hear. This is not the type of gospel I'm assuming people in here want to hear. We love the gospel about, oh yeah, tell me more about that saving us from hell part. Tell me more about that not leave you for or forsake you. Tell me more about the lilies in the field and God cares for the sparrows. Tell me more about the gospel of love and mercy and new life. Now those are very true. But this gospel rattles us. So again, if I could just address those in here who don't believe, you would say, I am not a believer in Jesus Christ. If I could just address you and ask, what aspect of the gospel of Jesus Christ don't you like? You don't have to yell it out now. You can come talk to me afterwards. What portion of the good news of Christ has not convinced you? Do you even know? Can I take a stab at guessing? That'd be all right. We get to it. What Paul is telling these men and what the Holy Spirit is telling us now through Acts is that we're invited. Here's the invitation. I've been building to this whole point. Here's the invitation. This is what we're invited to. You ready? You want to jot it down? That would be a good idea. This is what we're invited to. It's what we've been talking about all night. We're invited to a life in which God reigns over the here and now. You can also say it, an existence in which Jesus is Lord of all and I am not. You could also just call it the kingdom of God. This is what the gospel hauls in, the kingdom of God. 
Look at the beginning of Acts. It's going to be on the screen. This is regarding what Jesus said, Acts 1-3. He presented himself, this is Jesus, alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about what? The kingdom of God. Here's the end of Acts regarding Paul. Proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. It's this portion of the gospel, this portion of the invitation, people reject. This is the hinge of belief or disbelief. It's the, wait, 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 wait. It's the, who, 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 who's the king part? Go back over that part where, where God is, is reigning over my life and my decisions, my wallet, my time. This messes with so many. If we promise people, all you need Jesus to do is a one-way ticket to heaven, people will be like, I'm in. But if we don't get this portion of what I'm talking about now, we have missed the gospel entirely. So in hearing that and knowing that, verse 30 and verse 31 seem to be the single greatest note Luke could possibly close the symphony with. The kingdom of God and its king, the Lord Jesus. This verse, it's not there anymore, but this verse is genius. Luke knows exactly what he's doing. So in hearing that, again, I want us to realize that this, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the Christian confession. Luke ends his entire thing on this great confession. So here's the stab I wanted to take for the unchristian or the unbelievers here tonight. This is what you are rejecting. This, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord portion, the kingdom of God portion, of God reigning and ruling. This is what we're rejecting. It's not creation versus evolution. It's not biblical inerrancy. It's not heterosexuality versus homosexuality. That is not what we are rejecting. It's the Lord Jesus Christ part. It's these final words and acts, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. And as these religious leaders hear this, they're like, I am done. This is garbage. As they're getting ready to walk out on Paul, Paul goes, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has said to you. He uses all this biblical authority and calls them out. And look what he says to them. And, apply, and this applies to us here in this room now. And disagreeing among themselves, verse 25, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet. And then he just rips into them. Look at this. Go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. With their ears, they can barely hear. And with their eyes, they have been closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn. I would heal them. To receive Christ as Lord is to then believe that his reign is over every dimension of life. Every dimension. If you don't know what every dimension of life is, I'm going to tell you. The intellectual dimension, a moral dimension, a vocational dimension, a financial dimension, a relational dimension, a social, spiritual, sexual, political, and global dimension. It's fascinating to me, as Paul is here, and he's saying this, and he's with these, these people, and God is speaking to him that at night... 
He might go to the corner of his little cell up against with a candle and his quill and his papyrus, and he writes letters to the churches. Many scholars and theologians would argue that during these two years that Paul is stuck in like this apartment, why he's there, he writes Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Philemon. Those two years he's there. And he's reminding, especially I'm going to talk right now, the church in Philippi, this is what he says to them. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is, here it is, Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Paul could have said anything, but what he decided to write was that every tongue will confess, is Jesus his therapist? Wait, is that what he said? No. Did he say that Jesus, every tongue will confess that Jesus is, I don't know, teacher, mere friend? The distinguishing factor is Lord. Now, if I can just for a moment speak to just the Christians in here, because all of this stuff applies to you. Just because we're Christians does not mean we're exempt from this. We have to remember what Jesus said to the so-called believers. He says, why do you call me Lord and not do a thing I say? He says that to believers. He would never say that to a bunch of unbeliever, atheist, agnostics. He says that to believers. Discipleship groups here. This is the stirring up we do with one another. This. Helping to define reality within our communities, within our, our discipleship groups for the brothers and sisters as citizens of the kingdom of God. To caution those who say he is Lord, but then to see all actions reflect something completely different. This is what we do in our discipleship groups. Does this apply to anybody here tonight? Oh no, I'm definitely, he's Lord of my life. But not so much of my actions. Collective church, hear me out. Genuine, significant, true discipleship is wholehearted and whole life. It is whole life discipleship, not Sunday morning discipleship, not just when I'm hanging out with my Christian buddies discipleship, just not what people see in public discipleship. This means discipleship groups and disciples makers here. We are to examine every dimension when we get together at our times of gathering with one another. If the Lord is... If he's actually Lord over, let's, let's do it practically. If he's actually Lord over our finances, am I giving to the church? Am I generous? Am I coveting? That's, being, that's what Jesus being Lord over our, our finances means, that these type of things, our priorities are important. What about sexual dimension? Is sex to us sacred? Between a man and a woman, in a committed marital relationship? Is Lord over our purpose and mission? Is the gathered church this, right now, important? Volunteering and serving, important. Reaching my neighbor, is that important? Those are just some practical examples of what it means to have Lord over everything, have Jesus Lord over everything. Acts is the invitation to take God and his word seriously. 
So tonight, in closing, I place a mirror in every single one of yours and my hand. I put a mirror in your hand. And I ask, how will you choose to be part of this endless story? Will you choose to be complacent? Will you choose to be a consumer? Will you choose to be committed? Will you choose to be compelled by the gospel of Jesus Christ? These are the questions I charge you with tonight to carry with you as we respond. If you know there are dimensions in your life right now that Jesus is not Lord over, would you let us pray for you? It's like, no, no, he's not Lord over my sexuality. He's not over my finances. He's not over my vocation. If you know that, would you let us pray for you? Because we believe in a God who answers and listens to our prayers. There's going to be two people on that back wall. There's going to be two people on that back wall wearing lanyards. They're amazing people. They want to pray for you. Go to them. Anybody with anything, go and receive prayer. This is what we do as a church. We pray for one another. Second, the Bible says that before you receive communion, Christians, these representations of the gospel, before you receive them, that there is to be deep consideration and examination in all of our hearts. So we don't just go up here and like, oh, this is what I do now. That's not what we do. We sit and we examine going, before I take this, because this is a proclamation that he is Lord. So we consider, we examine, and we think before we come and take the representative elements that, he, that the gospel is our everything. Okay? And then lastly, one of my favorite things to do every single week is to sing together. There's like 400 times the commands in the Bible to say sing together. So if there's a portion right now where I don't feel fully unified with anybody, I'm not really connecting with anybody, I'm not really clicking with anybody, guess what? When we sing in one voice, it unifies us. So right now, if you are feeling alone, sing and worship, either in your chair, you can come to the carpet, you can raise your hands, whatever you do, just sing, 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 confessing our great need for him to be Lord of our life. Amen? Let's pray.